We are in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we pick it up today in chapter 14, verse 20. I love it. Look at you guys. You go, I don't want to say because then we have it recorded that you're climbing on pews or something. But uh, I just love it. I love watching you love each other. Such a beautiful thing. Speaking of which, read with me, starting in verse 20, as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line upon line, precept upon precept. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20 says this. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet, for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign. Not for those who believe, but to unbelievers, uh, I'm sorry, but to unbelievers, but prophesying is not for unbelievers, it's for those who believe. And yet, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So how is it then, brethren? When you come together, each of you has a psalm as a teaching, a revelation, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, well, then let him keep silent, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or more prophets speak, I'm sorry, let two or three prophets speak, and, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed by another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. God is not for, means because. See, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. In all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want something, they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. We'll address that. Don't worry, ladies. This is before you speak out and ask and then make you feel real weird about that. Did the word of God come originally from you, or was it only that you that are, was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things in which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, well, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you so much for what you're going to do in this time. I pray you would redeem every second, that we'd be so infected, so blessed, so brought in, Lord, that all we could do is, is love you more, want you more, glory in you more, delight in you more, celebrate you more. God, we confess to you, there are many here that are quite tired. It's been already quite a week and it's only Wednesday. 
Lord, invigorate us all tonight. Captivate us in your word, Lord. May we all get it. And may we all be so energized, so brought in, so blessed, so encouraged, so strengthened, and so challenged where we need to be, that we would walk out of here different people, better people for it. But Lord, more than it and it and it, information it and changing, having it change us, Lord, have you. We want to encounter you. We want to know you, your will for our lives. That's what we want. And Lord, in that, do all the work you want. You already have great things planned for tonight. Lord, let none of them not be done. But rather, Lord, in everything, do as you please. Have your way tonight, we pray. And Lord, I pray that you would supernaturally speak to every one of us right where we need to hear tonight. Whatever it is, that it, whether it be one thing or many, Lord, but let us get what we need to get tonight. As we've come in here, Lord, may we all walk out of here knowing you. If there's any who have yet to know you, let tonight be the night of their salvation, I pray. And we commit this night to you, Jesus, in your name. Fill me with your Holy Spirit now and do your work through me. Amen. I would say tonight is I would any... Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. I'm just a guy with a mic. But I love this God and I love his word and, and I love his people and I'm thankful for the opportunity to do this. The church that he's writing to here, this Corinthian church in Greece, is a church that has a reputation for its lasciviousness, for being crazy, for being no holes barred on its sin. No matter what it is, if there was if something wild is going to happen, it's going to happen in Corinth. That's where the church is planted. They've been planted by Paul on his second mission trip. And now we're on his third where Paul is now in Ephesus and he's there for three years. And while he's there, he gets this letter from Stephanatus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Three guys apparently from the church there. And when they show up, they give him this letter. And the letter really is kind of twofold. The first part is, Paul, the church is a mess. Could you help us out with it? And the second part, we've got these questions. Questions for Pastor Paul. And starting in chapter 7, through the rest of the book, he's really addressing those questions. Now, interesting, a lot of those questions really spurn out of the same, really, to be honest, out of the problem that they have, which is that somewhere down the line, when they said yes to Jesus, nobody ever told them, or they'd been taught otherwise, that they were supposed to now grow to become more like Jesus and less like the world. That becomes the problem. You see, if you're the kind that likes to fit in, finding Jesus could be a really rough world for you. Because from the moment you say yes to Jesus, God's so in love with you, he comes in and moves inside and comes and makes his house, his home inside of you. And when he does that, he begins to change you from the inside out. You are a completely different person. And in being that different person, you're different than the rest of the world. And so if you want to try to blend in with the rest of the world, you're in trouble. You will spend the rest of your life fighting God who lives inside of you to try to do what God what God's trying to do. You're trying to do the opposite. Now, I'm not telling you you run around with aluminum, aluminum foil on your head and try to avoid gamma rays and you know, poke people with sticks or something like that and start barking. And, uh, and what I'm telling you is, is that God's going to make you different because you have joy when they don't. You have peace when they don't. And you have a selfless love that drives you that the world can't get outside of Christ. And yet, in the church, what happens is, is that we start off before we know Christ as, if you remember, self-centered, self-driven or self-seeking or serving and self-elevating. That's really everything. Self-centered, self-serving, and self-elevating. That's, that's where we're at. And in all of that, then, we come to Christ, and somewhere down the line, you come into a, a group like this, and you try to figure out 
how to be cool in a Christian environment, how to be cool in church, how to excel in church, how to be popular in church. And the sad part is, if we bring that old dead body over and we try to do what we did before, well, we can really create a whole environment that looks just like somewhere else. Self-seeking, self-serving, self-exalting, that's what we do. And if you are here and you don't know Jesus, chances are the problems you've had, the humps you've had to get over on a hump day like this, were because you saw somebody who called themselves a Christian, but they were self-centered, self-seeking, and self-exalting. And you went, that doesn't look any different than anywhere else. Isn't it supposed to be different in church? Yes, it is. But can I say to you that how many people in the hospital are actually the doctors? When we come into a room like this, we come in sick, but we're aware of it. That's the difference between the hospital and the underground. There's a lot of people sick in the underground, too. They just don't tell you. Well, they tell you by doing this. <laughs> right? And you're like, uh, excuse me. But if you go to the hospital, it's pretty likely it's because you're aware that there's a problem that needs to be fixed. And imagine somebody coming, walking in and going, oh, I don't believe it. I went to the hospital and there were all these sick people there. Can you believe it? Yeah. Yes, there are. Welcome to the infirmary, my beloved. And can I just tell you, even the doctors are getting well. That's the beauty of the church. We've been saved by Christ. And every one of us, each day, if we seek to become more like Him, we'll become more like Him. Now there's a problem. If we are self-centered, self-serving, self-elevating, self-exalting, then we introduce things that can give us the opportunity to excel, that maybe define a little bit of our new identity. And we each have these different spiritual gifts, power tools that God has given for us to build each other up. But instead, we're like four-year-olds chasing each other with drills. A very dangerous toy for a four-year-old. And so what happens is we start competing. I have a saw. Well, I have a drill. Well, I have a nail gun. Which one of us is going to win? Well, the nail gun might win, but you get the idea that's not what God intended. We don't shoot nails at each other and say we're building a house by doing so. But that's what can happen in a carnal church. And again, what is a carnal church? A church that is self-centered, self-serving, self-exalting. That's a carnal church. And that's what he says. So what happens is God gives us these beautiful power tools, some by the way to encourage ourselves, like the speaking in tongues. The idea of speaking in tongues, and if you remember back in chapter, chapter 13 and 14, or I should say chapter 12 and 13, God made really clear, not everybody speaks in tongues. Not everybody prophesies. Not everybody has the gifts of, of, of healing. Not everybody's an apostle. So for someone to tell you, you're not saved unless one of those things happens, is really already somebody taking on a nail gun and blasting you with it. When he asks... Do all speak in tongues? Do all have the gift of healings? Are all apostles? You can't go, no, 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 yes, no, 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 no. That doesn't work. They're kind of rhetorical questions. And then, of course, he says, well, then let me show you a more excellent way. And then we get that beautiful chapter we know as the love chapter, chapter 13. The point's simple. You know what's missing from the church service? Love. A genuine, absolute concern to lay down your life for others' benefit. That's love. Greater love have no man than this, than to lay down his life for another's benefit. That's the whole point of it. 
So what happens when we don't lay down our life for others? Well, what we do is we become self-centered, or we remain self-centered, self-serving, and self-exalting. So then you get a gift, and you know what you do? You speak it louder than someone else. You do it in such a way, and people are listening, and they're going, well, that guy's spiritual. Check him out. But nobody's blessed but you. Because you know what you're doing? You're lifting you up. You're lifting you up. And that's not exactly what we're supposed to be doing in church. So somebody comes in with a genuine need. They're really hurting. They're on the verge of suicide. They're considering an abortion. They've just broken up and they think that their whole life is worthless. And life is rough for them. And they come in and they're looking for hope. And they're looking for a place where someone could wrap their arms around them and say, I care. You are so important. Whether you know it or not. Whether someone else has said it or not. You need to know God says so. But then when they come in, all they find is us shooting nails at each other from our nail guns. Trying to chase each other with drills. Could you imagine what that would look like? Imagine you go into a hospital and the, the, the doctors are chasing each other with hypodermics. You would be very smart to flee as quickly as possible. It'd be better to die in the parking lot than to run into a place like that. And that's what some people think. But there's also prophecy. And what's interesting is Scripture tells us we're always to test every prophecy. There's no prophecy where we're supposed to be able to just see a guy and maybe he speaks with that King James warble. He's a little Shakespearean and maybe that makes him holy. And he, you know, he's got the white robe and he's got maybe that full beard. And he's like, And that guy must be telling all the truth. Listen, don't believe anyone. Search it to the Scripture. I love the word that he uses. Dokimas is a person who's more than just a tester. He's more than just somebody who sits down to decide whether or not to give you your driver's license. It's a person who, in a, in a culture where there were different currencies, they literally weighed out the coins because they were supposed to be worth something. You get the idea that a pound was supposed to be worth a pound of something at one point, believe it or not. But if you shaved off the edges and trimmed around the sides of it, you could have the precious metal less than the face value. And a smart guy took tried and true weights, put them on one side of a balance, put your coins in the other to see if it really leveled out. And that guy was a dokimos. And in the same way, that's what we're told to do with every scripture. Well, then we need true, trusted weights. That becomes the Word of God. And you take the Word of God on one side and you take whatever anybody else says and you put it in the other and you say, does this balance out? And if it doesn't, cut the cord and run. Smiling, smiling, but run. Oh, you think, God bless you and I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to pray for repentance. I'm going to pray for you and get out. And I've heard guys talk about how they're the great power like Simon the Sorcerer. And, and say, and I've, I, this kind of stuff makes my head spin, they say, if you question what I'm doing, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Funny, the Holy Spirit's the one who told me to test you. And you're welcome to test me. You should be. So listen. He starts telling us, why do you speak in tongues? Why do you prophesy? Why are you so busy trying to do those kind of things? Because, you know, be honest, because they're cool. But being cool is one thing. Serving somebody else is another. And this is the place where we learn how... This is the close part. These are the people who should be the most forgiving to you. Isn't that true? So this is the place where we try out the spiritual gifts God's given us. Because they have to forgive us. How cool is that? 
But you're like, you know what, I just want to pray for you. I just want to, you know, I think the Lord may have a word. Here's the cool thing. If you know that, and you can't afford not to risk it if you know they're going to test it anyways and they're not going to throw a rock at you if you're wrong. I love the opportunities I've had in the past where I feel like the Lord's prompting me and you throw something out and you're like, Lord, I'm just going to trust you in this. I was speaking at a Campus Crusade for Christ event in, Southern, uh, in Central California. And as I'm speaking, we're just at the end of it. I'm about to bring it to prayer. We're going to pray. I'm giving the gospel. If you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And we're praying. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's a girl in this room right now, and she's thinking of suicide right now. And she, tonight, is planning on killing herself. And the Lord wants you to raise your hand. Now understand, I'm not one of those kind of guys that, like, any urge, I, you know, I eat a pepperoni pizza and I have urges. It's like, this is one of those moments where it's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, and you want to kill you. You are planning on killing yourself tonight. And the Lord wants you to raise your hand right now and get help. I know that's humiliating, but you need to do that. And, and you look around the room and no hand goes up. And you're like, uh-uh. And they're like, wait a minute. You're a 19-year-old archaeologist, a 19-year-old um, architectural student. Raise your hand now. Still no hand. And I finally went, he could give me your name. The hand goes up. Ah! And she cries. And everyone goes over to her and they pray for her. And it was such a beautiful moment. And then people come up and they ask, how did you know the Lord was speaking to you? that I couldn't afford to risk it. Does that make sense? Whether you're sure or not, I, I don't, it isn't about me. People want to go, that guy's just a kook. Look what he just did. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Hey, that's better than having gone to sleep that night going, I wonder if somebody killed himself because I didn't speak. Does that make sense? And this is the place where we do. And look, it isn't like the guy checks out the cute girl and goes, I want to sit next to her. You need prayer. You know, I think the Lord has a man for you. Looks kind of like me, smells kind of like me. That's not prophecy. That's manipulation. And we have guys here who look for that kind of stuff both ways. Paul already said, you know, I I speak in tongues more than all of you. The fact that he has to tell them tells us that when Paul must have done this, it must not have been in the setting where all of those guys would have known. Or he would have said, let me remind you. You've heard me speak in tongues more than all of you. The fact that he has to inform them tells us that when Paul did, it wasn't around them, or he wouldn't have to inform them. But if it is benefiting you, there are some things you do to benefit yourself that don't belong in the church. We talked about that last week, with Andre not getting a pedicure and doing his hair and getting a head massage in the church. Not that he was. We were using it as a hypothetical. You weren't here. The idea is there's a lot of things you could do to bless yourself. A lot of them don't work here in the church. Meanwhile, you know, a Cedro could come and set up a little hot pot and start cooking up something in a wok, you know, or whatever. Hey, that's nice, but this isn't the place for it. This is the place where we come to bless each other. That's the point. So we get to our text now, and this is sort of the gist of it, as he sort of kind of gets to the nuts and bolts. And notice, by the way, he has some very stern, very serious, but very clear guidelines. The theme of it is to let everything be done decently in order. Let everything be done for the edification of others. That's the whole point. If you got that, the rest of it really kind of falls into place. Do you really want to bless others? Or are you still busy trying to be the man, be the woman? So here's the idea. First of all, in verse 20, there are some things I want you to be novices in, and there are some things I want you to be experts in. Do you know what I want you to be expert in? 
And the word is understanding. And the word is fren, like the word for thinking. Fren, it literally means to reign in. And I like that word. Like, for instance, the word for torn is the word schizo, like schism. And the idea of a person that with a torn brain is a schizophren. We use the word schizophrenic for that. That's the idea. He goes, in your understanding, reigning in your thoughts, I want you to be an expert in them. But in kakoskakia, badness, I'd like you to be a novice. So when somebody tells you, by the way, oh, look, you need to play the field and you really don't know unless you experience it for yourself, I'd say, according to Scripture, that's a lie. I don't have to get diseases to know that the disease isn't good. I don't have to wonder whether I'm going to die of age to think, wow, wish I hadn't had that. He tells us, look it, you're going to choose to be adult in some things and children in other. Be wise about what it is you want to mature in. Well, how do you mature in something? Quite simply, one of the ways is by virtue of being really familiar with it, being in it a lot. I've a friend recently who's um, just got his license, his driver's license. Now, I don't know how long he's been driving a stick, but it appears to me that it's a relatively new thing. I'm, really, I'm very encouraged by the fact he got his license. But it was like a really fun ride. It was a lot of this kind of thing. And I kind of felt like the guy's kind of a newbie on the stick thing. It's really fun, by the way, for the moment, as long as I wasn't getting cars. Then you have other people where you know it's like you barely know that they're driving a stick at all. It's like everything's just kind of so smooth. Everything's kind of cool. You kind of go, I think that person's been driving a stick a long time. The difference is that they've had the experience of being with it quite a, quite a while. It's like, look, I'd rather you not be really, really familiar with, with badness, with things that hurt people and hurt you. I'd rather you not be familiar with that. But I'd love for you to be an expert in reigning in your thoughts. He says, because it's written, and then he gives us verse 21, for which this whole thing sounds so wonky at first. With men of other tongues and other lips, I'll speak to this people, and yet for all of that they won't hear me, says the Lord. And therefore, tongues is a sign. And he's like, tongues is a sign. Well, how, how, how does that work? For those, not for those who believe, but it's a sign for unbelievers. But if they walk in and you're speaking in a tongue, they're going to think you're crazy. Any of you kind of go and go, I'm not too sure how that works algebraically. I don't know how A to B to B to C works. But he quoted verses. And if we're wise in our study of the word, we go back to where it came from. Well, that's why you're in Isaiah 28. Remember where your finger or your lock of hair or whatever it is that's, that's in that place? Flip there for a moment. Isaiah 28. Now we are going back, by the way, at this particular point, over 700 years. During the time that Isaiah is writing, by the way, the, northern, the, the kingdom of Israel had been split into two. The northern kingdom, ten of the tribes were led in the capital. Their capital was Samaria. And it was traditionally, originally led by Solomon's commander, who was from the tribe of Ephraim. His name, by the way, just to make it worse, was Jeroboam. What made it worse was that the other guy that ruled the other two tribes in the south's name was, was Rehoboam. They're both Boams. Like, that's probably why we don't name our children. But this guy in the north from Ephraim, he realizes that Jerusalem's in the south, and if people go to those three feasts expected of Jewish men, they'll probably desert him. This is what he thinks. Although God said, I will set up your kingdom if you follow me, but he doesn't listen to that advice. 
So he says, you know what I need to do? I need to set up a golden cow. That will help and make it convenient for them. I'll put one in Bethel, just north. So if they want to go to Jerusalem, they can have the cow instead. And then one way up north in Tel Dan. It's a place we visit, by the way, when we're um, in Israel. And you go up there and so that, hey, let's make it convenient. I mean, why, if you're all the way up in Scotland, why would you have to go all the way down to London for something? Let's just get them to Glasgow for a big cow. I mean, that's kind of the idea. That particular sin, the sin of Jeroboam, is mentioned more than any other sin in Scripture by a person. Less than, or more than Judas. Matter of fact, more than 26 different times you'll read the sin of Jeroboam. How'd you like to be known for that? Oh, you're the guy whose sin is always talked about in Scripture. And so the kingdom is divided. And in the north we have all of these guys, and, and they've never had in all of their 19 kings, not a single decent king of all of them. Everyone more awful than the last. So finally they get taken captive and dragged away by Assyria. Pretty rotten situation. That happens during the time of Isaiah. The south, by the way, Hezekiah is the king during all of that, watches all of this happen, but doesn't take the instruction he should. Now understand, when you are about to go down, God way ups the info. That's something you'll learn in Scripture. When the northern kingdom's about to go down, all these prophets show up. God really brings things. There's a whole lot more information so that you, you're going to get it from every corner and you have to really work hard to deny that God is speaking. Same thing's going to happen in the south when they get taken captive in 586 B.C. Now, the reason I say that is that when God speaks about the drunkards of Ephraim, he's talking about the northern ten tribes, and this is what their state is at this moment. And this is what he says. Read along. We'll read through the chapter. Listen. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is like a fading flower, who is at the head of the verdant, which means green, valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. You kind of get the idea they're drinking a bit. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. And that glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, and he eats up while it's still in his hand. At the beginning of this, God says, look at where you're at. You're so proud. You're so self-reliant. You're so self-centered, self-serving, self-exalted. You can't even see how delicate you are. You think you're invincible. Hey, you're, you're cute right now. you got it going on. You're like a flower in a beautiful green valley. You look good, but you don't realize how quickly that fades. You don't see it at all. And you're so proud that you figured you might as well just get drunk all the time because you have no responsibility to anybody but yourself. That's the way you're seeing it. Because, but you don't even realize. You know what you're like? You're like something that looks really great and then somebody takes it and it's like it's gone and eaten and nobody sees it anymore. Now, I don't know many of you have seen the short Bambi Meets Godzilla. It's a cartoon. Some of you have seen it. But it's like this pencil drawing sketch and it isn't like I'm endorsing you to spend your entire life on the YouTube. But it gives you an idea. Of it. it reminds me of this. It's like this, you know, it's like this like little flute music in the background. A little like... Little birds flying in the air, you know, butterflies floating by, and there's Bambi nibbling on a little bit of grass. And it's like, 
And everything's really nice and gentle. Also, it's like, bah! and it's just this big foot that comes down, legs are out, and it's the whole movie, right? That's it. It's not a very short, it's a short film. It's not a very long film. Because you kind of got the idea that when the two met each other, it was going to be pretty rough for Bambi. Probably Godzilla wasn't going to know much about it. And the reason I say that is that's kind of what you was like. You think you're Godzilla, but you're actually Bambi in this story. And there you are thinking you're awesome because you're cute like a little doe, a female deer. And there you are, you nibbling your thing, thinking you got it awesome, and you don't realize that calamity comes down, bam, and everything changes everything because you're so proud. It's all about you, baby. And you can't even say it. You're so proud that no matter what I say to you, you won't listen. In the day that the Lord of hosts will be, listen, in that day the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory. Right now you think that all of, it's like you put a crown on your head and said, check me out, I'm royalty because of the way you look. Because of how you feel you are. But when that happens, strangely enough, when those hard times come like that and you get flattened, you'll see that God's actually a lot stronger than you think He is, and you're not. And the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people. For a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. In other words, look at when God shows up, let me tell you what happens. For the people who really do trust in Him, that small group of people, much smaller than the mass, there'll actually be a spirit of justice for those who have gotten none. And there'll actually be strength for those who have actually been fleeing from their battle. And maybe that's where you're at right now. You just feel like everything seems so unfair and it seems so crazy and everything's on top of you where you feel like you're so fearful that your whole life's like running from one thing to the next to the next. And God says, look, at when God, when God shows up and He does what He wants to do, you'll have the strength you need. But let me tell you about them. But they have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. Do you think God has made His point clear here on this? Here's the problem. It's not just the people. It's the religious leaders. The prophet, the priest, and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision and stumble in judgment. Listen to this. You know what the problem is? And if you've ever seen anybody who's dying of cirrhosis, so your liver is supposed to filter toxins. If you're intoxicated, that means you have toxins in you. Get it? And that means your liver has got a lot of work to do. Your liver is trying to filter all of that toxin, all of those poisons. So while all of that's happening, what happens sooner or later is, and we've said this about so many, they've sucked so hard from the bottle, the bottle finally sucked them in. And that's what God's saying. You want to see a beautiful picture of how God sees it? It's in a single verse, verse 8. Look at it. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. Filth, by the way, you kind of get the idea, it's kind of like poop. No place is clean. So imagine, here are the priests, the prophets, and you come in because life is messed up. And you want to get sorted. And he goes, let me invite you to dinner. And you go in, and the table is covered in vomit, and there's poo all over the table. And which one of you thinks, this guy's got great judgment? Again, cut the cord, run out, smiling, smiling, and get out quickly. And that's what God says, that's what it looks like to me. 
These guys are so busy getting wasted. And here's the crazy thing. They think that they're actually being relevant by doing so. When we came here, it was one of the first things I was told. You need to make sure you go out to the pub and you get drinks with your crew. I'm like, let me tell you what. My hope is to see every person who's been, who's been sucked from the bottle, in the bottle, delivered. I want to see people set free. You know what the opposite of that is? The opposite of a table full of filth and vomit is when the Lord our shepherd prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. That's the difference. Whom will he teach knowledge? So who can even tell this to? And to whom will he make understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breast? It's like, you know, obviously... The adults aren't getting it. Well, who's going to learn this? The kids? Little babies that have just learned, that aren't even learned to walk yet? Verse 10 says, For means because. Precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little, there a little. Here comes the problem, by the way, with reading the Bible. If you think you just want to read it once in your life and then get all the information inside of it. Your brain is going to explode. See, every time you read, God is building. Every time I read scripture, I get more out of it. And every time I read it, it's like we can be so concerned about what we don't get that we don't actually listen to God for what we do get. We're like, I don't get it all. I'm like, let's be honest, what do you get? Well, I get this kind of simple thing. Yeah, that's good because the simplest is the most important. It's, that, it's the way it works. See, when it goes line upon line, that means we go straight through scripture. That's what he tells us. He goes, precept upon precept means that as we learn one point, the next time we go through it, he builds on the next point, and then on the next point. But it's like he can't build. God's a, God's a master architect. He does not build the fourth floor without building the first three. And you're like, I want to understand all prophecy. I'm like, you don't even know who God is, and you want to understand prophecy? You like want to build a penthouse, and you don't even have a foundation. And he goes, so... How are we going to teach? This is how we. This is where real growth happens. This is where maturity happens. We go straight through Scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept. Here a little, there a little, and then he gives us verse eleven. For with stammering lips and another tongue, literally, by the way, the idea of it is it's a foreign language that we don't get, so it sounds like gibberish. That's the, per, the term for stammering. For stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. To whom he has said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. Ah, and this is the refreshing. But they would not hear. Did you notice it doesn't say that they didn't hear? Do you hear the difference? When someone would not hear, that means you're making a conscious choice not to listen. Do you get it? Have you ever done this? You've tried to tell someone something important, but they don't want to hear, so they go, ah, la, 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 which always looks funny to me. That's this is what it looks like. He says, listen, but the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, and we are in agreement. When the overflow scourge passes through 
It won't come to us, for we've made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we've hidden ourselves. Do you get the idea? And listen, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily, or literally will not act in shame. Also, I'll make justice the measuring line and the righteous the plummet. And that's where God goes. Listen. God says, this is what I want. You want to know the truth? It's in my word. Line upon line. Line upon line. Precept upon precept. Precept upon precept. He goes, anyway, he goes, I can do really crazy cool stuff. I can do really cool miracles. I can do miracles that are of judgment. I can even do miracles where it shows that you're willing to listen. You're just, I should say, you're willing to listen to anything that doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do. He goes, this is going to be a sign to you because you will not listen and therefore you will not believe. Now understand, a sign spoken against is not to say this is to convince you that it's true. What it says here is a sign in this case, is, like anything, validates the message. The message is you will not give audience. And because you will not give audience, you will not do this. You won't do this. And I, and God, in other words, what God says, it doesn't matter what miracle I do, you are really not going to come and listen. And if you hear someone say, you know what? If God came and he sat on my bed and he made me a mushroom omelette, then truly I would believe. You'd believe in what? The mushroom omelette fairy? Do you remember the story when Jesus tells Philip to find, uh, to follow him, and then Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel? Do you remember that? It's in the first chapter of John. And, and, and if you're not, that's all right, just be patient with me, then we'll get right into the rest of our text. Philip finds Nathaniel, and he says, hey, we found the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagi, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One that has been promised to redeem the world, Jesus of Nazareth. And all that Nathaniel can hear is, Nazareth? We found the Deliverer. You know what? And it's like, in Joshua, saying, Joshua is one of the 11 most common names. We found the deliverer of the world, Bob from Brixton. Bob Smith. Really? From Brixton. The deliverer is coming from Brixton. And I love it. And, and I'm not trying to diss Brixton. The whole point of it is, it's that th there's this attitude. And, and I love it that he asks, can anything good come from there? And I love that he doesn't listen. And I can learn from Philip in this. He doesn't get into some weird, lengthy theological dissertation. What he does say is, why don't you just come and see for yourself? Well, if God's so smart, Mr. Smarty Pants, well, who was this? Who was that? Or whatever. Like, you know what? Why are we arguing over stupid things? Who's Cain's wife? Who cares? The bottom line is, if Cain's wife is Cain's wife. She's married. Why are you interested in her? You really want to know Jesus? Come and, come and find out for yourself. So the guy comes. It works enough for him. So he comes, and when he comes, Jesus from a distance looks and he goes, Now there is an Israelite in whom there's no falsehood. Now, I don't know about you, but if I, Jesus kind of called me out like that, and I'm supposed to be brought to the guy, I would be a little bit concerned. I'm like, okay, uh, what did he tell you about me? How do, how do you know me? And Jesus says, right, he goes, well, I, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And the guy falls out and he goes, oh, you are the king of Israel. Remember, he just called him Israel. 
And now he's going, you're the king of Israel. And any of you kind of go, oh, what? There's like the fig tree button. Who, who, you know, how do you know me? I saw you when you were in the fig tree. The guy falls down. You are clearly the Messiah. You try that in your ministry. Hey, you need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. He saw you under the fig tree. Think it'll work? Probably not. We just don't get any more information than that, right? And you kind of wonder, what just happened? Listen, listen, listen. For Nathaniel, that's what he needed. It was just that, just that. And that's why we don't get it, because it isn't our button. Unless something amazing happened under a fig tree and the Lord called you on it, you would do it. But for most of us, fig trees don't mean much. And there are all kinds of theologians like, well, the fig tree. Everyone knows the fig tree is what they sewed their underpants with. Whatever, whatever. All I get is that we get it. Here's the point, is that God knew that there was a button, and when he pressed the fig tree button on Nathaniel, he believed. And if you've got a button, he's going to press it. And, that, and I'm convinced of that because he doesn't want you going to hell and he doesn't want you saying no to him. So listen, if you're like, well, if God were to sit on my bed and make an omelet, if you have a sit on my bed and make an omelet button, he will do it. Here's the problem. God knows, even in this text, hey, I can have people speaking in all kinds of crazy languages that didn't just a moment ago and you're still not going to listen. Because you know why? If you're not going to listen to my word, none of the stuff, the rest of it matters. But you can go to places, and I'm not trying to diss any place, but you can go to places where it's all about and whatever, but there's no word involved in it, and we have great experiences, and we get hyped up on our spiritual energy drink. We walk out, we crash and burn, and we have no line upon line. We have no precept upon precept. We don't even know who God is. We just know somehow in it. If we get there, when we plug in, we have a fun time for a moment. It's kind of like the new version of the club. And I'm not trying to be mean. What I'm trying to say is, is that what God is saying here, listen, is that no matter what I do, it's not going to matter. You're not going to listen. And the point isn't just you're not going to be cool and go, wow, that was amazing. That's one thing. He goes, I'm not here to do a dog and pony show. I'm not here to amaze you. I'm here to save you. I'm here to deliver you. I'm here to heal you. I'm here to transform you. I'm here to make you a whole. And you can be amazed all day and be none of those. He goes, let me go, let's go back to our text. So here's the deal. In church, tongues are a sign. But you know what? They're not a sign. They don't have to be a sign in church. They're a sign that people won't listen. They're a sign to the unbeliever. That no matter what God does, you're not interested in it. You know why? Because if you came in and the word was being taught straight through and you weren't willing to listen, none of the rest of it's going to matter anyways. So they are a tongue. But he goes, well, let me tell you what. So if a guy comes walking in and you really think this is about, if you were really concerned about other people, you wouldn't be busy whipping out your power tools to chase somebody with your drill if what you were really concerned about was a person coming and going, well, that person might not be saved. And if that person might not be saved, how do I treat them? Now understand, if I were a doctor and someone came in, and I, let's say I was a single doctor and I was 25, and some girl came in and she was just beautiful, I still would want to see her well. I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm afraid that maybe I can just try to do things that make her impress her with my doctorness. But she came in to get, to get well, to get healthy. And it's somewhere down the line, I sign a paper that says, you know, I'm actually committing myself to serve other people. That's what this, you come in, you expect that from the guy. And then they come in here. And they don't expect it just from this guy. They expect it from 
these guys. And they come in and they, 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 they're having a rough day and things are rough and they're looking for encouragement. And it's like, you all want to stand in a queue for me to go and talk to you at the end of this? Am I that special? Let me tell you what, I'm way special, but no more special than you because Jesus died for me and he died for you too. But what happened if we all did what God called us to? And this would be so helpful. And it's already starting to happen. He goes, but here's the problem here. He goes, man, if you guys are all competing about who can speak into a tongue and they walk in, they're going to think this is the craziest place I've ever been. This guy's going, ah, da, 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 da. this guy's going, oh, should have bought a Honda, should have bought a Honda, should have bought a Honda. This person's going, burrito, burrito, burrito. You can even scream in English all of those things. It's still going to sound crazy. And somebody's coming in to find peace and order in their life, and they're trying to get rest. Remember that was a guy says, look, this is my message. It's a message of rest to the weary. And a weary person comes in. That's not going to give them rest. That's going to make them think, well, they're like the rest. That's different. He goes, but what if you all sought the gift of prophecy? Remember how he's going to tell you one at a time here? What if that's what we prayed? God, give me divine insight. So that when I spoke, I spoke into their heart. Hey, that doesn't just have to be in this room, does it? If you've got your doctrine straight, we could be so proud, we could not look for the heart. And can I say the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. So you're out there somewhere and you're talking to someone and they're like, I believe that nanobots did all the miracles through Jesus' bloodstream. And we've had this. And I've been with a beloved brother next to me who's ready to fight. And we're like, well, let me tell you what the Bible says. Do, 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 do. And it's like he kind of came with like, whoa, 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 Right, he's like spiritual bandolero and he's got his guns. And he's like, go ahead and tell me something stupid and I'm going to fill you full of holes. Right? But the problem is in the end of it all, the person may be full of holes, but... Nobody's healed from that. So you're like, God, help me. God, give me insight. And you start asking, what's up with you and your father? That's a crazy question to ask a guy who wasn't talking about his dad. It's like, God, give me wisdom into the heart. Because hearts where, you know, unfortunately, no matter what your brain knows, your heart still makes the choices. That's the problem. That's why you're like, I know he's horrible, but I love him. And your heart's going to make the choice. And you're like, oh, that's so so they're going to argue in the head and you want to stay in the head and you're like, God, get me to the heart. Does that make sense? But for me to do that, I've got to actually risk it and it can't be about me anymore. It's got to be about you. He goes, wouldn't it be cool if we all prayed actually for spiritual gifts for the purpose of blessing somebody else? Versus just, God, give me a spiritual gift so other people go, wow, are you cool? Awesome. You could be the next pastor. Start, you know, as an usher and then become a deacon and work your way up the, the corporate ladder. There's no corporate ladder here. Success is obedience. On whatever level he calls you at it, it's what it is. And whether you're out dancing somewhere and telling somebody about Jesus or you're out on the street telling about Jesus or you're making something out of metal and telling someone about Jesus, the bottom line is you do what he called you to because you love him. Because people become important now. Which takes us to the last issue on the chapter, which is, well, what about women? Right? You're like, uh-oh. I know, well, that's why he waited just for the last few minutes so we could get through it quickly. Well, if you understand that now, you're in trouble because it's scripture. But uh, follow me on this. One of the things that was really big in Corinth was this women's liberation movement. Now, we're not, we're not talking about the idea that women have equal rights. Women should be about I mean, God never, by the way. You really think that God underplays women. Who's the first person Jesus showed up, to, showed up at uh, in the Gospel of John? 
was a woman he cast seven demons out of. I mean, imagine trying in the Middle East to this day, put a woman in any sort of Muslim country with all due respect and try to have her say that God appeared to me first and the guys wouldn't believe her. See how well that works for you. God has no problem when he tells us in regards to the sight of God, there's no male or female, slave, Scythian or free, Greek or Jew, in the sight of God. But in the sight of man, there's a difference. Here's the problem. In those days, what the women were doing in, in the area from Galatia all the way across into Greece is there was this proving that they could be a man as much as a man could. And what the men used to do for sport is they'd throw off their shirts, shave their heads, and chase wild boar with sticks. Ladies, does that sound like a really cool pastime? Well, some of you thought, oh, that might be fun. And so the women wanted to prove it, so they did the same thing. They'd throw off their shirts, shave their heads, and run around and hunt wild boar with the rest of them. You know, it's like, it's not, it doesn't take much to figure out which ones are the guys and which ones are the gals. And I'm not trying to be gross or crude. I'm just trying to be honest. And the idea of it is like, you know what happens when people get so confused? Of, because all of a sudden it's like, well, we just make up our own place of where we belong. But in Scripture, God says every person has a place. No place is less important than another, but everything has a place. And understand what he says. Notice it says, the women aren't supposed to speak, if they wanted to, let them speak to their husbands at home, which gives me an idea of what was taking place in the church. Remember, churches, the women and the men were separated. So can you imagine, you're speaking about something like humility. You're like, you know, the Lord really wants us to really think about other people, and they want us humble. And imagine from the other side of the room, Imon starts saying, Hey, Bruno, did you get that? No, they're not married. But you get the idea. You know, they're a couple enough to, to play that. With you. And the whole point of it is, imagine what that does to the whole church service. No, no, it doesn't matter what I say for the next ten minutes. All you're thinking is, oh man, she did. Oh no, she did. But what happens if you have thirty people doing that at the same time? I mean, it's one thing to nudge your husband or your wife. And it's another thing to be able. To, it's like, look at if this is what you really want to go and find out. What in the world does he mean by that? like, you know what happens? is It becomes disorderly again. And God says, I want to order here. In regards to tongues, here's the way it works. And God, and says, here's my standard. No more than three. One at a time. And there must be an interpretation. Or sit down and shut up. And they're like, well, gosh, that's so, you're just squelching the spirit. Probably squelching yours. But not the spirit of God because he wants us for us all to be blessed. And he goes, you know what, then go home and speak in a tongue all night long, and that's just great. You want to build yourself up, go do it. Here, though, if you do that, pray for, and by the way, it doesn't just say pray for someone that has a gift of interpretation. It could just be like, you know what, someone, you start speaking and you're saying something, and you're like, I freestyle. And all of a sudden, Mario says to me, goes, you know, that was Greek, roughly. You know, and he looks, and he, and he goes, wow. And it's like, but that makes more sense, because then it's like, well, what he said, well, this is what he said. I'm like, okay, now that does bless me. But for a person just to go for it, it's like, well, hey, that was really cool, but none of us got anything out of it other than that guy, that was kind of cool, what he said, I think. I don't know. Who knows what he said, but it was fun. I don't know if any of you ever saw the movie Courageous. They, they put this, they have this friend, he's Mexican, and they have him in the back of the car, and then they put this guy that kind of thinks he's really tough next to him, and they pretend. They're like, oh, this guy's like, he's from the Snake Kings, and we, we just captured him, and we're just going to put you next to him anyways. He's known for killing people. And the guy's like there, and he's speaking Spanish, and he's like going, oh, I'm going to get a lemonade. 
getting a cheeseburger. I mean, and this is what he says. He's going to lunch with the guys, right? But they, they picked up this other guy. And this guy's going, no, I don't know what he's saying. He's scaring me. He's scaring me. Man. He's scaring me. Get me out of the car. And it's really an interesting moment because it was what he says. Like, the guy didn't get it, so he didn't know what to do with it. God says, wouldn't it be great if we loved each other enough that what we really wanted was to touch each other's hearts? Wouldn't that be cool? And it's like, look at understand. For every person I stand in front of, I'm accountable before God. I'm going to stand before Him. And you're going to be run through that. I want to be innocent. I want to be able to say, you know what, I told Him the truth, Father. You know that. And I can't deny the fact that God has a set order. But ladies, let me just say this. In a home, a man, listen, God never gives authority without responsibility. That's just the way it works. And for every bit of authority, God holds you accountable to what he's made you responsible for, for that purpose. Authority without responsibility, you become a tyrant. Responsibility without authority, you just die. And for every one of us, we have, a, we have authority for the places given us, for the responsibilities handed to us. And we should be very careful to make sure that we are careful with that first, before we try to get more responsibility with more authority. I'm like, well, you know what I really want? I just want to be a boss to people. God's like, that doesn't work. He tells me that I can't even do that. He says, you know what you're supposed to be? An example to the flock. You don't lord over them. You're supposed to actually play in the field with them. You don't stand on the sideline with a clipboard and tell them what they're doing wrong. You get out in the field with them. I love that. So listen, it ends with this. And look at it as we close this up. Look, you can all prophesy one by one. And he tells us, did you notice in this, that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets? You know what that means? If you're like, you know what? It just happened. It came upon me and I couldn't help myself. I just had to slap people in the spirit. And I was just crazy. And I, just, and I had to French kiss in the spirit. Everyone that I thought was cute. Look, at you know what? The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. And we've heard all kinds of... I mean, it's almost like you... It takes you almost a moment to go, did that just really happen? Did that person really just say that? And sincerely, God's Holy Spirit is not here to make you out of control. God's Holy Spirit is to make you more like Christ. And what He wants is to use you to bless people. How cool is that? So listen, I want to end this. So He says, and by the way, verse 26, let all things be done for edification. That's what we want to do. Verse 33, because God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches. Not just the Corinthian church. Every church. Verse 39 says, Brethren, therefore, desire to prophesy. For what purpose? To see in the heart of a person so you can really minister where the need is. And don't forbid, don't forbid people from speaking. It's just do it right. Let all things be done decently and in order. You wouldn't want to go to a hospital where things weren't done decently and in order. If you've ever been to some third world countries, you think, I'm more likely to die from being in here than whatever it was that brought me here in the first place. We've been in places where there's more goo dripping from the wall that's unidentifiable and you're just going, whatever that is, this is a hospital, don't go near that. God doesn't want goo dripping from the walls here. He doesn't want you dripping from the walls. 
What he wants is that as we continue to grow in Christ, that he uses us to be a blessing. Could you imagine being a, I mean, you walk in a room and God says, I want to use you to bless this place before you. Not just bless this place by leading. That's different altogether. And what if that's what we came to do? Scripturally, we got right with God on our way to church. We're like God, because you don't get right with God at church. You get right with God at Christ. That's where you get right with Him. Lord, there's something that's not right. Get me right before I even get there. So I am in the zone and ready for whatever you have from the moment I show up. And if there's someone in need and you want me to be a part of meeting that need, show me. Keep my eyes open to it. And if somebody else doesn't see it, let me not condemn them. You didn't show them because you may not want them to be the part of the solution. You wanted to use me. So I want to be available. I'm a tool in your belt, Lord. Use me whatever way you want. So we close this. Let me ask. Have you had a problem with what you thought was Christianity to get over because it looked just as selfish, self-centered, self-serving, self-exalting as everything else? To be Christian means to be Christ-like, right? Think about what a crazy thought that is. And let me tell you about my Jesus. Jesus was not self-centered. He has always been you-centered. You've always been. It tells us, for the joy set before me endured the cross, scorning of shame. You're the joy. He tells us the kingdom of heaven is like one who walked through a field and saw a jewel so precious he gave up everything to purchase the field. Beloved, you're the jewel. He gave up everything to purchase it. There's never been a moment where Jesus is like, you know what, forget it. We're so done. I'm just going to go on vacation. I'm going to go on holiday. And you guys could go to hell. But you're thankful. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. And his thoughts outnumber the sand on the shore for you. That's my God. And he proved love the way that anyone could honestly prove it. And that is by sacrifice. But since he's the greatest love, he provided the greatest sacrifice. By choice, though tempted in every way, yet without sin, went to the cross to choose to pay for your and my guilt and everyone else's too. It's really quite simple. Somebody's going to have to pay. Remember how God says he's going to bring justice? Justice means that the guilty must be punished. And this is how it works. Whatever you've ever done, thought, felt, or intended wrong, Jesus, without any sin, chose to take your guilt upon himself. And they got nailed to a cross so it could be fully punished. It's that simple. How do I know it was enough? Because he rose again from the grave to prove it. And then he offers you a new life. Not just one without all of that old horrible stuff, but one now encased in his love, engrossed in his kindness and grace, and walking for the rest of your life in this beautiful relationship that he created you to have with him. But love isn't love without a choice. So listen, have you accepted that gift? I'm not asking have you joined a church. I'm not asking have you given to charity. I mean, walking into church, making you right, is, I mean, as crazy as thinking you walked into a McDonald's and it made you a hamburger. Truth be told, you meet the Creator who's paid your price at the cross. And then he asks, look it, I've paid the bill. Will you allow me, will you cash the check? Will you allow this to go through? Will you allow the transition? It's like God did all of the transaction. And then it's like, you know, he's like held that little thing, you know, where you put your card in and then you just, you just press at the end of it all, enter. He's like, I've done it all. Now all I'm looking for is for you to press enter. In other words, you're saying, yes, okay, God, if you really want to pay for all of this rottenness, take it, cleanse me and make me brand new, line upon line, build a new foundation. You're the cornerstone. That's what you said here. That's what I want. 
And if you're willing to do that today, He's willing to make you brand new right now. And I don't know, maybe tonight He's pressed your button, whatever it was. I pray so. But if He has, then it's time to say yes to this God. Because He loves you and He doesn't want to waste another minute of life without you. He'd rather die than live without you. That's what He proved at the cross. And now He's got a brand new life for you. And I guarantee you, there's nothing like it. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, that you've not intended church to be a competition. Thank you that you've not intended church to be a challenge, a place where we're all trying to figure out who's the coolest, the funkiest, the most awesome. You are the coolest. You are the most awesome. That's what's clear. And I don't want to compete with you, and none of us have a right to either. Jesus, I want to thank you. You've proved what it means to be totally selfless. To be not self-exalting or self-serving, but you came to seek and to save and to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And I fit into that category quite easily. And I pray, Lord, for every believer in here, myself included, Lord, that we would really seek from this point forward to congregate for the purpose of being used and not just to be a spectator, to really enjoy and to be filled, but then to taking that and then turning and serving each other in whatever way, whether that's through prayer like we do or whether that's through service in some other way. Lord, open our eyes to how you want to use us to be a blessing to each other. Lord, give us a broken heart for those who may not know you. Lord, so that when a time comes that our concern, our behavior would reflect somebody who genuinely cares about people and not just trying to make ourselves look great. And right now in this room, look at it. If, you, if you're not sure you've ever said yes to Jesus, you're not sure you've ever, or you're sure you haven't, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it all, if you can agree to that, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let that be my prayer now. Let those words be my words. And here it is. God, I come to you faulty, <clears throat> like every other human being. I've done wrong, I've thought wrong, I've felt wrong. I'm human, and that's the way we are. But you've come and you've brought justice by putting all of my guilt and all of my punishment, and you chose to place it upon yourself so it could be properly punished without me having to be punished for it. And so, if you're really willing to do this, I'd be crazy to say no to that. When you died on the cross, all of my eternal punishment died with it. And as you rose from the grave, you proved, just as you promised that you would, you proved that there's a whole new life that's no longer under the bondage of that sin anymore, but a life of joy, peace, and of rest. Finally, finally, the weight of the world could be taken off my shoulders and I could, be, I could find the rest my soul has craved. Would you give me a choice to receive this or not? And tonight... I make the choice to say yes. I say yes. I may not understand everything, but I know this much. If you really want me, and you want to declare me innocent, then I'm going to say yes. If you really want to adopt me as your own, cover me in your love, and give me new life, then I I say yes. And I surrender myself to you for you to do the work you want to do in me to make me more like you. So here I am, I'm yours. Take me now, Jesus, in your name. And if that's you tonight, I ask you to give a confident amen.
Lord, thank you. Jesus, we declare you as Lord. We declare you as our Savior, as our King, and our friend. And I pray tonight as we, uh, as we go from this spot now, Lord, to interfacing with each other, teach us how to genuinely fellowship with each other in our conversations, how to serve each other, how to love each other as you intend. And thank you for the privilege of what you've done tonight already. Jesus, in your name.